Welcome to episode four of the Case Collective podcast. My name is Kingsley Grimshaw. I'm a senior associate at Barry Nielsen Lawyers. Today, I am joined by my colleague at Barry Nielsen, George Rafter. We've got a good mix of cases to discuss on this month's podcast. We deal with a work stress-related psych injury, an unsuccessful injury claim, which may have ramifications for the band in excess, as well as a couple of high court decisions dealing with the curly question of when an employee is in fact an independent contractor. George, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off with a case note that I understand you proudly authored. So the first case that I'll be talking about is Potter and Gympie Regional Council. It's a Supreme Court of Queensland judgment and as Kingsley touched on, um, it's in relation to a workplace psychiatric injury. Mr Potter uh, sued his employer, Gympie Regional Council, as a result of him developing a severe psychological injury which incapacitated him from working, which arose from his employer's handling of an investigation into allegations of misconduct made by some of his subordinates. Mr Potter was a team leader uh, in the local laws team at the Gympie Council. The ramifications of the investigation were that if the allegations were substantiated, they would have potentially amounted to serious misconduct, resulting in Mr Potter's employment being terminated or serious disciplinary action being taken against him. The employer had a number of uh, meetings with Mr Potter uh, between around March 2014 and July 2014 regarding the misconduct allegations. In July 2014, Mr Potter was stood down from his duties pending the outcome of the investigations. Mr Potter alleged that the employer was negligent for two reasons. Firstly, for failing to strictly adhere to its own policies regarding discipline reaction being taken against workers. And secondly, failing to take reasonable steps to mitigate against a foreseeable risk that he would sustained a psychiatric injury during the course of those investigations. Before I touch on the specifics of this case and the court's findings, I think it is important to note, um, particularly for employers, that in claims for pure psychiatric injuries, which you don't come across in a lot of circumstances, but the burden on a plaintiff in establishing a breach of duty is much higher than that involving a physical injury. In pure psychiatric injury claims, what a plaintiff needs to show is that it was reasonably foreseeable that the employer's conduct would cause them to sustain a recognisable psychiatric illness. Um, it would not be enough for a plaintiff to show that the employer's conduct gave rise to them having some sort of adverse psychological reaction, which would include something like stress, anxiety or intermittent sadness over the conduct. In these types of claims, uh, it is therefore important for employers to closely analyse when they became aware of some sort of psychological vulnerability of the worker um, during its conduct. Turning back to the specifics um, in Potter, Justice Brown found that the employer only became aware of Mr Potter's psychological vulnerability when he tendered a workers' compensation medical certificate which specifically stated that he was suffering from a psychological injury due to his employment. Um, prior medical certificates, which Mr. Potter had tendered, did not specify what his illness was and only stated that he was unable to work due to some sort of medical condition. The court also observed that although an employee being the subject of disciplinary action is no doubt a stressful situation and may give rise to, as I touched on before, some sort of psychological symptoms, uh, an employer is entitled to be satisfied that their employees would be capable of enduring such a process, 
in the absence of any inclination of some pre-existing psychiatric vulnerability. Accordingly, the court found that prior to the workers' compensation medical certificate being tendered by Mr Potter, stating that he actually had a psychological injury, the court found that it was not reasonably foreseeable to Gympie Regional Council that Mr Potter would sustain a recognisable psychiatric illness as a result of investigations or disciplinary action being taken against him. Um, Just quickly, what I think this case shows is, as I touched on before, the high burden of proof which workers must meet in order to show that an employer has breached its duty of care in cases of pure psychiatric injuries. For employers, it is important to note that when the employer becomes aware of the worker having developed or is developing a recognised psychiatric injury or vulnerability, This will often be the time where the risk of psychiatric injury becomes foreseeable and the employer will then have to take additional steps in order to mitigate against that risk of injury. My first case note today relates to the High Court decision of CFMEU and Personnel Contracting, PTYLTD. This case relates to a young backpacker by the name of Mr McCourt who was travelling through Australia on a working holiday. Mr McCourt mostly worked in hospitality or as a general labourer. To facilitate his working holiday, Mr McCourt secured himself a white card which enabled him to work on construction sites. He then contacted the defendant, Personnel Contracting, which described itself as a labour hire company. Mr McCourt told Personnel that he was prepared to do any sort of construction work had his own means of transport, owned all the relevant PPE and was ready to start immediately. Personnel offered Mr McCourt a role, informed him of the rate of pay and asked him to sign certain documents, including one called an Administrative Services Agreement, which described Mr McCourt as a self-employed contractor. Mr McCourt was then sent to work on two sites run by a company called Hanson on three separate occasions. Personnel's relationship with Hanson was governed by a separate agreement described as a labour hire agreement. Within that labour hire agreement, personnel was described as an administrative services agency liaising between the client and self-employed contractors for the provision of labour by self-employed contractors to the client. Mr McCourt subsequently issued proceedings against personnel in the federal court seeking compensation for underpayment. However, the primary judge held that Mr McCourt was an independent contractor and dismissed his claim. On appeal, the full federal court also concluded that Mr McCourt was an independent contractor. The CMFEU appealed the matter to the High Court and by way of six to one majority, the High Court allowed the appeal, finding that Mr McCourt was in fact an employee. The High Court concluded that the multifactorial test adopted by the federal court and the full federal court was not appropriate in circumstances where a contract is wholly in writing. The majority said that in such circumstances, the relationship ought to be defined purely on the basis of the relevant contract terms. In relation to Mr McCourt, the High Court found that despite personnel's attempts to describe him as a self-employed contractor within all of the contractual material, that descriptor was not indicative of the true nature of his role. Relevantly, under the terms of the contract, personnel had the right to determine who Mr McCourt worked for and in turn Mr McCourt promised that he would cooperate in all respects in relation to the supply of his labour. Mr McCourt was also entitled to be paid by personnel and not Hanson or some other third party for the work he performed at a rate determined by personnel. The level of control exerted by personnel over Mr McCourt and the other workers 
was critical to personnel's business as a labour hire agency. On that basis, the majority of the High Court concluded that Mr McCourt was in fact engaged as an employee. This is a pretty significant decision for those working in the employment law space. It represents a substantial departure from the multifactorial approach adopted in Hollis and Vabu and makes clear that such an approach is only required in circumstances where contractual arrangements are only partly in writing and partly verbal. In this decision, the High Court has made clear that in situations where a contract is entirely reduced to writing, then it is only the terms of the contract which are relevant. The next case that I was going to talk about was Farris and Axford 2022. It's a New South Wales Supreme Court judgment which involved famous in excess guitarist Tim Farris, who was the plaintiff, who sought damages for injuries sustained to his left hand during a boating accident. Uh, the facts of this case were that Mr. Farris and his wife had chartered a boat and were anchoring the boat when he alleged his left hand became caught between the anchor chain and the gypsy of the boat. The incident caused his left ring finger to be severed. Mr. Farris's finger was able to be reattached surgically, but he alleged that it was rendered useless. As a result, Mr. Farris said that he was unable to play guitar and write songs for NXS. Despite it being publicised that NXS had retired in 2012, Mr. Farris said that it was likely that NXS would be touring again at some stage in the future. Mr. Farris and his company, Montana Productions, sought damages against the boat owner and charter company, alleging that the incident occurred due to a mechanical failure of the anchoring system and that the defendants had failed to properly maintain it or warn him of any defects. The defendants, on the other hand, maintained that the anchoring system was working as intended and that the incident occurred as a result of Mr. Farris triggering the system due to standing on a switch on the deck. The outcome of this case turned mainly on the evidence which was provided at trial and Mr. Farris's previous reporting of the incident in his pleadings, a previous affidavit and also a statement which was provided. Ultimately, the trial judge dismissed Mr. Farris's claim with costs on the basis that, firstly, contemporaneous notes from the ambulance attendees stated that Mr. Farris had told them that his foot had accidentally touched the switch, triggering the anchor to move upwards. Secondly, there was discrepancies in Mr. Farris's reporting of the incident between his pleadings, his evidence at trial, and a number of other documents which the court did not look favourably on. Thirdly, Given the court's findings that the incident did not occur as alleged by Mr. Farris in that he triggered the anchor to begin moving upwards through pressing his foot on a button, the court was unable to rely on Mr. Farris's expert evidence regarding defects in the mechanical system. The court found, based on expert evidence, that if the anchoring system was moving upwards rather than downwards as alleged by Mr. Farris, then there was not likely to be any mechanical issues. Accordingly, it was found that the defendants had not breached their duty of care to Mr. Farris. The court assessed damages at around $600,000, with nearly half related to economic loss. The court noted that it was curious that Mr. Farris did not call other band members to give evidence regarding in excesses, intentions to continue to keep touring in the future, but did not draw an adverse conclusion in this regard. The court accepted Mr. Farris's evidence that, if not for the injury, in excess would have toured again and his earning potential would have been significant. This case is yet another example of how important it is for plaintiffs to get their story straight. Where a plaintiff has provided various differing accounts of events, it is reasonable for courts to call into question their credibility. 
Thanks very much, George. My second case note and the final one for today is ZG Operations Australia, PTYLTD and JAMSEC. In this matter, the relevant background is that between 1977 and 2017, the respondents, Mr Jamsek and Mr Whitby, were engaged as truck drivers by various entities related to the applicants. The respondents were initially engaged as employees and drove the company's trucks. However, in around 1985 or 1986, the company offered the respondents the opportunity to become contractors and purchase their own trucks. The respondents agreed to the new arrangements and critically set up partnerships with their respective wives. Each partnership executed written contracts with the company for the provision of delivery services, purchased trucks from the company, paid the maintenance and operational costs of those trucks, invoiced the company for its services and was paid by the company for those services. Income from the work performed by the respondents was declared as partnership income for the purposes of income tax and split between the respondent and his wife. The respondents issued proceedings in the federal court seeking certain entitlements alleged to be owing to them under various pieces of legislation, including the Fair Work Act, on the basis that they were employees. The primary judge concluded that the respondents were not employees and instead were independent contractors. However, on appeal, the full federal court overturned the primary judge's decision and found that having regard to the substance and reality of their relationships, the respondents were in fact employees. However, the decision was appealed to the High Court and the High Court unanimously found that the respondents were not employees of the company. Consistent with the decision I discussed earlier, the High Court was again critical of the full federal court's reliance upon the multifactorial approach in circumstances where the arrangement had been comprehensively committed to the terms of a contract. Specifically, the High Court focused on the fact that the contracts with the company were entered into via partnerships and not the respondents individually. In those circumstances, the High Court concluded that the respondents could not be employees in circumstances where they provided services to the partnerships and the partnerships in turn provided services to the company. The decision reinforces the High Court's departure from the multifactorial approach adopted in Hollis and Babu in situations involving a contract entirely reduced to writing. Both the decisions I've discussed today provide some really useful guidance in terms of considering whether a person is an employee or a contractor. That question, of course, has become more and more relevant with the burgeoning gig economy and the trend towards contract workers. That's all for this episode of Case Collective. Thanks for joining me again today, George. As always, you can read a full summary of the cases discussed in today's episode and get in touch with our team by heading to our website at bnlaw.com.au. And if you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. 